Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What's going on, Nuggets fans? Welcome to another episode of Full Court Press, brought to you by the Denver Stiffs Podcast Channel, part of the new SB Nation Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Vogt, and this week I'm excited for a, uh, a slightly different kind of episode yet again. I was able to get in touch with Field Humphrey and Patrick Newman, who are two filmmakers, and about a year ago they started putting the finishing touches on a documentary they've been working on called Let Them Know You're There. It's on Jim Tucker, an NBA player of the Syracuse Nats from the 1950s. He and his teammate Earl Lloyd were the two first African-Americans to win an NBA championship. And in the year 55, Tucker set the record for the fastest triple-double ever recorded. As Newman and Humphrey were putting the finishing touches, however, on their documentary, Nikola Jokic broke the record. So this was a really fun conversation to have because the documentary itself, which I was lucky enough to get a look at, it's centered around this triple-double and Jim Tucker, but it's about much more than that. The film is really about Tucker and his wife, Jan, and them sort of dealing with Alzheimer's, which Jim is unfortunately living through. This is a guy who so much has happened to. He was a part of a historic NBA championship. He set an NBA record uh, for the fastest triple-double off the bench, mind you. This was a guy who whose team was instrumental in the implementation of the shot clock, uh, something that helped them win a title. So this guy is woven into NBA history. And yet what he can remember from his life, has been it's been stripped down to just the essentials. And for him, the essentials aren't necessarily the basketball stuff. It's family, loved ones, the impressions he's been able to make on those that matter to him, the importance of the, the legacy he leaves behind, and that legacy not being basketball-related, but who he is as a human being and his character. So this is just a truly, truly fascinating and and powerful figure in basketball history. And of course, somehow, Nikola Jokic stumbles his way into this story. And it's kind of fun to see our hero here in Denver sort of um, full of shame, kind of sheeplessly laugh at the idea of him having anything to do with Jim Tucker, whom he admits he knew nothing about. So it's really, really just an awesome documentary, an interesting history lesson, but also something that that tugs on some important emotional strings, in my opinion. I spoke with the two of them on the phone recently, and, and we talked about the whole process from their inspiration to the film to the the difficulties of doing research on a story that's sort of been lost in the cracks. And of course, what it was like meeting Jokic and the panic that set in when he broke that record. It's a fun discussion. It's loosely related to the Nuggets, but I think it's really interesting if you're a basketball fan. So without any further ado, let's get into the latest episode of Full Court Press, Patrick Newman, Field Humphrey, of readily available media on their new film, Let Them Know You're There. So, first of all, job well done, guys. That was fun. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. 
it's one of those stories where you don't even know it's one you you want to be told you know I, I i'm 25 years old i don't no one ever mentions jim tucker to me right and if you had said that there was you know this guy had set the record for the fastest ever triple double i think interesting anecdote but maybe not a story i want to hear more about until you guys actually told it and this is a, about a lot more than basketball this jim tucker story it would seem it is yeah we um Jim's grandson, Bernie, uh, is actually my good friend from growing up. And so actually I like kind of have the same um, mindset as you. It's like, oh, it's kind of cool, but it's from the 50s. It's kind of a long time ago. And then Bernie kept kind of imploring me and Patrick to really take a deeper look at the story and actually talk to Jim and his wife, Jan. And like the deeper and deeper we dug and the more and more folks we talked to, like the journalists that are included in the film, like we were kind of blown away at all this like buried history that uh, Jim's kind of tethered to. And like, you know, the shot clock and, you know, the old school way of playing back in the 50s, you know, and, and just Jim and how incredible he is and what an awesome person he is and his battle with Alzheimer's. It, ended up being a very deep and complex story. Yeah, for sure. So you guys didn't, you didn't necessarily go hunting this story. It was sort of, you, you got a tip on this one or I'm, I'm curious what your process was for really tracking this down. Yeah, it was. Um, so Patrick and I have both done some ESPN 30 for thirties. Um, Patrick has uh, helped produce Brian and the boss and Phi Sigma Jamma. And I was an editor on Phi Sigma Jamma. So we were wanted to do uh, our own project and, kind of the first project for a company that we were starting. And yeah, my good friend Bernie, um, who I've known since like high school, we went to college together. Um, he just kept telling us about his granddad, Jim, and like really sat us down and kind of shook us. was like, no, you need to take a deep look at, at my granddad and his story. So it was, yeah, it's Jim's grandson who is, in, who is uh, actually who introduced us to Jim and Jim's remarkable uh, story. Yeah. And we weren't even really uh, completely sold on our first trip out there. Uh, the way that we kind of envisioned it, or at least told ourselves, is you know at least we'll have like a record to give his family. Let's go ahead and like get Jim's story, you know, committed to tape or you know, you know SD card these days, and uh, let the family have it. But once once Jim started unpacking it, and we got to learn a little bit more and just hear his side of the stories, we were like both looked at each other on the way back uh, to Austin and thought like, now nah, there's, there's something more here. We need to make this bigger. Yeah. There's some real meat on the bone. I, I, like at what point in the process you, you say that drive back to Austin, how quickly have you realized this is about more than basketball? This is the Jim Tucker story. This is not a story about a, a record itself. Um, well, we had 19 hours to drive back. <laughs> so we had a long time <laughs> to think about it because super shoestring budget to start but um it was i think and and patrick let me know if this is the same for you but like i think it was when we got his wife jan involved and she kind of started talking about how they cope day to day with jim with jim's alzheimer's and how she shows him photos every day and she starts every day with a good memory and like that's when we knew like there's really a heart to the story and like something that wasn't like, cause it's a depressing subject, Alzheimer's. And we really didn't want to like fall into some like cliches and some like melodramatic documentary when like, that's not who Jim is. 
And so uh, I think it was when his, his wife, Jan, um, got involved. And she's, like, super incredible and amazing. Yeah, that's that's definitely, you know, one of the inflection points for me. But uh, we also did a little bit of preliminary uh, research with uh, Sean Kirst, who's a reporter, uh, formerly in Syracuse, now in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, we were trying to you know, do a little bit of fact-finding before going out there. And hearing Sean lay out the story of Syracuse and you know Syracuse I feel like is a character in this film as well like knowing that there was this whole rich backdrop in which Jim was living uh was a real plus on my book it's interesting because the Alzheimer's is it's an important part of this story right you could say it's featured heavily in this film but to the point you were just making it's not it's not done through a depressing lens I was uh, impressed and I found noteworthy the way you sort of it you almost made it lighthearted like opening with him saying uh what is it that I hold the record for again like I thought that part was awesome and I, I'm just curious about you know how, how much work did you guys have to do to like spin that as like I don't want to say a positive thing but it really seemed like he and Jana figured out a way to work through this together in which there's there's more more smiles than tears for what you'd expect I think it would have been harder to like kind of spin it like in a, in a depressing kind of uh, uh, more dramatic tone. Cause like, I think we just really wanted to do the family justice on the film and really show who Jim naturally was. And Jim and Jan are naturally like positive, um, like really inspiring people. And so I think we, we actually did like, we didn't do that much work to, to kind of, um, presented in a positive light because we're just capturing these moments and they were positive and they were always upbeat and they like I don't know they're just inspiring people so I think it would have been harder to make it depressing but I, going into it our tone we definitely wanted to have a more positive spin on it and and more upbeat film especially for a short right yeah and I think a, a, a word that popped up a bunch when we were making it or just you know rewatching the footage is like grace almost the fact that you know, Jim just kind of has a gracious way of, you know, taking everything day by day. And, you know, he's a pretty easygoing guy, as you can probably tell from the from the film. And uh, yeah, I think that, um, Grace, given the situation that they're in, um, you know, we've taken Jim around. We did a screening up in Duquesne and like people were kind of blown away with. You know, because he actually didn't even – they didn't even realize he had Alzheimer's for, like, 10 years because mm -hmm. he's so smart and he was able to, like, use context clues. Right. And, like, actually, you know, hide it until the, until finally they took his driver's license away because he kept getting lost. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, again, I, I kind of don't know if I'm answering your question or where I answer your question. but No, for sure. Absolutely. No, it's just interesting because – you know, he's he's your main character. He's the closest thing you have to a a firsthand account of a story that's really quite old, that's sort of been lost in the annals of NBA history. How difficult was it for you as storytellers to work around the fact, well, there's not a lot of people who were there that can tell us what happened, and the one who is is dealing with something like Alzheimer's. Were you sort of fitting the pieces of a puzzle together yourselves as storytellers? Yeah, you know, it it was a little difficult on the research end of this to, to try to piece things together because, um, 
I mean, part of the thing, one of the things that we thought was so interesting about the NBA is it was kind of a wild west back then. Mm. Um, you know, all the way up until now, there's questions about who owns, you know, what footage or what details or, or what kind of uh, history for all of these teams. And we just were so lucky and the people that we were able to find, like Sean Kirst, like David Ramsey, who's out in Colorado with y'all, who are these, you know, amazing torch bearers for early NBA history that kind of spackled in these holes. And uh, another big, you know, win for us was partnering with the Onondaga Historical Association up in Syracuse, uh, New York. And they had a treasure trove of, you know, never before seen NBA footage that they didn't even know they had up in That's their attic. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was maybe one of the highlights for me uh, of the film was, you know, being in this musty old attic. We had to, <laughs> uh, we tracked down a dude that actually knew how to use a film projector and we were capturing this footage literally as it was turning to dust. That's right. Cause uh, he- he was surprised you guys even had any footage, right? I remember in that final scene, like, where'd you get this film? He asked. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We can't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, awesome. You guys must've just been like jackpot when you got let in. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause we could, we only like Patrick was saying, we only have like a couple shots at capturing it. So we like are in this attic filming it off a wall with our, you know, our camera. And, um, thankfully it turned out great. Probably in hindsight, wasn't the best way to do it. But I mean, we, we were able to preserve this history and, you know, we had footage of like the owner, Danny Biazone, like talking about the move to Philadelphia, which was insane. And like, really like, like they were playing the Knicks, not necessarily the game that Jim, uh, broke the record, but like, you know, really like ENG footage of, you know, the team, the Nats in like 1954 playing the Nat, uh, playing the um, uh, Knickerbockers, uh, New York Knicks. I don't know why I said the Knickerbockers, but <laughs> you're not uh, wrong. It feels more old. School. Yeah, more old school. Yeah, just get yeah. mindset. But you know, just in, in really insane footage um, that we were able to capture. Capture. So it was kind of an amazing experience. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure the story doesn't really come together without it like that. I want to back up a second and and go back to your backgrounds as filmmakers. I you both you worked on some thirty thirty films. Are you huge sports fan? Are you huge NBA fans? And when you decided to start readily apparent, were you hoping to tell sports stories, or did this one just sort of fall into your lap? Oh my god, yeah, I, I love the NBA. I'm, I'm a huge sports fan too. Um, you know, grew up in Atlanta. And I uh, was a huge fan of, like, the Georgia Bulldogs, um, you know, college football. But my dad went to Duke, so I always liked uh, college basketball as well. Mm. Um, so no one hate me out there <laughs> for being a Duke, Duke fan. But, um, yeah, I mean, we definitely have that background. But, like, Patrick's, like, is much more versed in the documentary and, like, film world than I am. And so him and our other business partners, uh, business partner Ben, kind of push us to more creative outlets and just uh, sports stories. Okay. But I think it's what really felt natural to us to kind of start off with, especially coming out of like Brian and the Boz and and Fisama Jamma, that we felt like we were very good and like equipped to tell a sports story, but we also wanted to bring in that kind of heart and like emotion into a sports story and not just kind of shove out some like uh, typical sports platitudes. For sure. And job well done on that, by the way. Well, thank you. 
so this was was this your first project to get like big project together did you know when you got together you'd be working on this like what's sort of the timeline like there we actually got together for a film that uh we finished what last week yeah i think so yeah like so yeah there's there's another doc that we just got out totally unrelated to sports that took i don't know twice as long as jim tucker's uh story took um but this was on the docket pretty early on and being a short and you know having such an all-star cast and and the reporters that we talked to and jim like uh it just it moved a lot quicker so um wasn't the impetus for us kind of striking out on our own but you know, i think really kind of solidified the core of what we're trying to do so as NBA fans, when you guys are doing your research for this and you're, and you're di- like you said, Syracuse itself is almost like a character in this film. Uh, you're learning so much about the way basketball used to be in the 50s. Are you thinking to yourself like, wow, this is just night and day, like how different things were back then to now? I think he, he talks about getting a scholarship offer to Duquesne and then getting to play for the Syracuse Nats, Jim this is, and he says, I've got it all. And I couldn't help but laugh to myself because these days having it at all is like, $25 million contract playing for the Lakers, whatever. I, I, I was just astounded to sort of take a trip back into this basketball world. That's almost unrecognizable from what we have now. Yeah. Oh my God. Like I think we were watching like TNT last night uh, and Shaq was like at halftime talking about like how, you know, scrubs are getting $30 million contracts right now. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think his first contract was like five grand um it's incredibly different i mean we we were talking to sean curse like uh, patrick was mentioning before and like he's telling us all these anecdotes that were happening like there's the syracuse strangler which like strangled a ref at halftime in the 50s <laughs> like because he didn't like a call or like Wait, that's a real thing <laughs> Yeah, they never found the Syracuse Strangler. <laughs> but he's like this huge, like, big deal in Syracuse. They, like, halftime at a Nats game, strangled a ref, and, like... Um, it's actually our next documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who is the Strangler? Um, and then, uh, you know, what they used to do to George Mikan when he came to Syracuse is uh, he had uh, um, asthma. So the fans in Syracuse would smoke cigars in the stadium. <laughs> And then there's like a guide wire, right? What was that? Oh yeah. Uh, so the the everyone apparently hated playing in Syracuse because the crowds were so rowdy, and I'm sure you know most fan bases would try to claim that back then or still do. And uh, but in this particular instance, the uh, hoop was suspended by wires, and the fans would actually get up and start shaking these guide wires and, and have the hoop move back and forth during like free throws and things. So a lot of sportsmanship going around back then. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And, and just the physicality of the game's way different. Like Jim talks about getting punched like right, right. at the garden and like, you know, by some, you know, Celtics players. Um, and then like just the speed of it. And that's like kind of cool too, is like Jim came in this rookie year when the, like NBA attendance and um, interest was kind of low and the owner of Jim's team his rookie year introduced the shot clock and kind of propelled this game into this new era, like superstar driven era. Um, So it is kind of, it's way different and it's kind of interesting that Jim was there at 
the beginning of this, you know, big paradigm shift in the league and how they played and, you know, even culturally too. Yeah, because, I mean, he played with Earl Lloyd, who was the first African-American to enter the league. So there was, like, all these, you know, pieces that were falling into place that were ushering the NBA into what we knew it today. And he just happened to be along for the ride. He, we, we joked a lot about, like, him being this kind of Forrest Gump character of right, right. In, in the NBA. It's funny. He and Earl, I mean, like you said, first two black men to win to win an NBA title. Is that correct? When they won in, in 55? I think it is. And... That is just, I mean, that seems like it's almost lost. I don't know if anyone knows either of those names. And that's, like, that was the first thing that I thought as I watched this was, like, I, here's a guy who came off the bench over 50 years ago, uh, overcoming sort of insurmountable odds when you consider the racial dynamics. And he go, he goes for a triple-double in 17 minutes. And this is a dude that if you guys don't make this film, I never even hear his name. It's kind of incredible how they've sort of fallen through the cracks. Yeah, it's like all these guys, like we, um, when we went back up to Duquesne, we got to meet Chuck Cooper III, and, um, who's an incredible dude, and his dad, Chuck Cooper, was the first African-American drafted, and so there's like three African-Americans that came in in the league at the same time, Sweetwater Clifton, Earl Lloyd, and, uh, and Chuck Cooper, and like never heard of these names really, <laughs> and right. These are people who like really should be getting the same attention as, you know, a Jackie Robinson should. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Especially like, yeah, I I don't know. So that was really interesting um, to kind of unearth that stuff and and something that really should be obvious um, learning about it. This is a story about a record setting or centered around a record setting triple double, though it's ultimately about Tucker as a person, um, Alzheimer's, hope, the reputation and the legacy, the personal legacy one might leave, but it's centered around this triple-double thing. You guys are working on this film during the proliferation of the triple-double in the NBA. Does it occur to you at some point, like, man, someone someone might break this record? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> yes. We, uh, I mean, we just had, like, a folder on our desktop that said Russell Westbrook. Like <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, in case of emergency, open this folder and we'll right. start to re-edit the film. Uh, yeah, the, the whole time we were making it, he was, like, knocking on the door. It was very <laughs> upsetting. <laughs> and then, of, and of course, uh, this isn't, of course, for Nuggets fans. This is the most Jokic thing possible. It's not Westbrook that sets the record. It's, it's some dude, Nikola Jokic. Some dude, if you're outside of Denver. When you guys heard that this happened, was your first thought like, "All right, we gotta, we gotta meet this guy. We gotta get him in the field, in the in the film, rather." I mean, after the initial just pure panic, <laughs> it just was. <laughs> yeah, start with the panic. That's really yeah. The good we part. we were yeah. We didn't really have clear minds initially. <laughs> oh my god, that might be the most frantic phone call I've ever gotten from field. I thought he had like gone into a car wreck or something. <laughs> right. It wasn't. It wasn't just that he broke the record. It was the week that we thought we had finished the film. Like we had started, you know, signing all the paperwork for insurance and, you know, had, you know, I thought we had reached picture lock for this thing. Uh, And then this just comes out of left field and uh, we went into problem solving mode that, you know, ended up, I think, strengthening the film and ended up working out for the better. Yeah, it's definitely evergreen now. And like, ultimately, it is kind of incredible that it happened, especially when we're still like, able to change the film right. and able, and still had like you know the budget to do so 
Um, and and to Jokic and his uh, his people's credit, like everyone was super cool and like flexible. And you know, we're based in Austin, and they were playing the Mavericks a few weeks later, so we just scrambled and like you know got a room at the team hotel, and he gave us like a whole bunch of time to sit down and, and interview him and talk about it, and was super awesome. <laughs> so. He's an, he's an incredible guy. He's just not like any other NBA star that I've had the chance to meet. He just doesn't carry himself like that. And it's almost like, of course, he would give you guys that time. And I love the way the shot was set up and he just kind of wanders in there. And you know how sort of like he just kind of bumbles around Jokic. And it's it's hilarious because he's he's so important to the Nuggets and the NBA right now. And he ends up being so important to the story you guys are telling. But like anything else, it just seems like he kind of happened upon it, right? Here's the story of Jim Tucker 60 years ago, more than 60 years ago, and somehow Jokic just stumbles into this thing. So I just, I know you guys said he was awesome, but I'm just curious if you have more impressions about of Jokic and, and what he's like, you know, compared to maybe what you expected. I, I don't know what we were expecting. Um, you know, his his reps and the, uh, the people at the Nuggets that we were talking with and working with, definitely gave us like an idea that he's like super laid back and like really cool and like generous with his time. So we definitely had, but like, you know, everyone's going to like <laughs> talk nice about their client and their, you know, but he came in and he was just like from the get go, like super interested in what was going on, super kind, like, you know, really curious about the topic and, and I think genuine as well. And so like, I, I think you Denver Nuggets fans are like, incredibly lucky to have a superstar like that and that he seems to be very inclusive with his teammates his family and like kind of has the right priorities in life and and it's just like a good kid so um i think those were our impressions from from our short time uh meeting with him and working with him i love i love when he says i'm, I'm mostly just sorry that i ruined your film <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah. the best yeah no he is so yeah it, i i couldn't ask for you know if, if the record had to be broken i couldn't ask for a better person to, to break it because it's just like there are some interesting parallels uh yes to his story and you know his demeanor and also jim's like to him for him to provide this you know missing link to present day nba like we despite all the you know heartburn we got when it happened it it, it really paid off really all that time hard. apart two different people yet very similar reactions, right? Like two guys to whom this record really probably doesn't mean much and never did, you know? And I just, I, those, I found those parallels interesting. Yeah. He, you know, when we asked him, like we told him about Jim and like how, you know, with his Alzheimer's, what he really remembers, like asked Jim about that. And Jim's response was like pretty consistent of like, you know, family, friends and like teammates and loved ones. Not really like, those are the memories that he could dig up, you know, in the, you know, the deep crevices of his memory that was still there, like, were all these special moments he shared with people. And, like, Jokic seemed to, like, click a light on in Jokic's head. It was like, yeah, that's that's what I hope I would remember as well. It's like, you know, my girlfriend, my, my brothers, my family, my teammates. Like, he, he definitely seemed to share that sentiment as well. So I think they're very like morally in line with one another. So that was really cool to kind of see and, and, and share. For sure. And with Jim, this is a guy who he's so 
woven into basketball history and yet basketball almost just seems like something that happened to him and and the what what Jim is really defined by is what you just articulated his relationships with people how he's perceived by those that are close to him and that story at the end where where he talks about the apartment fire and running back to get his his check um but then stopping and seeing a girl stuck in the fire and saving her life and and forgive me I forget who at the end brings up that of course, Jim doesn't remember really that day getting his championship rings or having the banner hung or whatever it was. What he remembers was saving that young girl's life. And it just struck me at like, this is a guy who the legacy that was most important to him is leaving one of, hey, I, I show everyone the same respect. And a- any life I, I enter, I try to leave them with, with some sort of positivity, uh, try to have them better off for having known me. And I just, I don't know, I was almost, I was overwhelmed a little bit emotionally because I think that that is honestly the type of legacy we'd all like to leave and and to see it exist in this guy who has so many other things he can hang his hat on but that's really his defining quality to me that's what made this story really rich yeah man you nailed it i mean like field said we've had you know we've been very lucky to work on a lot of different cool projects but very rarely would i say that a project that i worked on has you know changed me as a person or like really in fact like impacted how I view life but this one making it really has I mean Jim like you said you know Jim's approach to life and focusing on how to positively impact people and you know that being the core of one's purpose in life like really crystallized some things yeah absolutely and uh yeah it was the it was the championship ceremony but there it wasn't a ring uh there was a team trophy but what t- uh what Jim and his teammates got was actually an ice bucket because we're talking about the 1950s and right yeah <laughs> <laughs> a little ahead of, of of the ring and the banner time huh yeah yeah so some actually a minor league hockey team got him those rings like um a few years back i think like 2013 and so that was when um there's actually some cool moments in there too. So the only remaining members, there was a, a point guard whose name is uh, escaping me right now. Jim and Earl were the last surviving members of the Nats. And uh, no, it was uh, I, I, I can't remember who it was. Billy. Ooh. Um. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll dig up the name, but um. Yeah, it's Billy Kimball. Billy Kimball. So yeah, mm-hmm. Billy Kimball, Earl Lloyd, and and Jim Tucker. We're the last three surviving members, and uh, and they're walking out the uh, door, and, and Sean, uh, who was actually telling the story about how Jim didn't remember uh, the trophy, but he remembered saving the girl. Jim or Sean was there and got to witness uh, Billy Kendall looking at Jim and saying, Jim, we finally got one. <laughs> and it was just like kind of a cool special moment. Um, but uh, to take kind of a sour note, you know, Jim uh, – our, um, Earl passed away shortly after. Hmm. Billy Kinville ended up uh, suffering from Alzheimer's as well. And so the last two surviving members of that uh, championship team were battling Alzheimer's, and it's kind of a kind of a sad end, but you know, a positive look at you know what these guys were able to accomplish. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting. That almost sort of encapsulates the the Jim Tucker story and dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. maybe a little sad, but we'll take the positive perspective on it. Uh, status update on this film. You guys have been screening this for over a year now, right? 
Ooh, it's getting close. Yeah, we've uh, we've had it around in a couple different places. You know, we took it to uh, South by Southwest here in Austin and uh, had it out at uh, Deep in the Heart Film Festival in, in Waco. And then we've uh, taken it around to a number of different uh, PBS stations. And I think what we've been doing uh, with that has been, you know, pretty interesting. Yeah, we're uh, we try to go to you know different parts of the country, and we've been working with the Alzheimer's Association. Mm to kind of partner up and kind of galvanize and educate communities by having these screenings and panel discussions. So we're pretty early on in that process. Um, we weren't able to set one up for Denver, but uh, next time that it broadcasts on Rocky Mountain PBS, I'm sure we'll get something set up. Uh, we were able to go to Jim's alma mater in Pittsburgh and had a great team, uh, had a great turnout for that event and had, you know, the Alzheimer's Association reps. We had Chuck Cooper III come out. Um, had the whole Duquesne men's basketball team come out as well. And, you know, some of the Roonies came out, which was kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, and, and just trying to like, you know, get some press in these cities, kind of point, point people towards resources, uh, that are available to them in their communities in case they are a loved one or battling Alzheimer's. So we're really trying to make an impact with the film and, and kind of an, have an entertaining way to do so. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing right now. And I remember reading about a national release. Is that different than through the local PBS affiliates or? So nationally we're, we're going to, you know, hopefully get it on a streaming site and, you know, do DVDs for whoever still does DVDs and, and that'll be the national release. But as it is now, I mean, because of the amount of time and, and how gracious Jim and Chan were with their time, we're, we're trying to make sure this film makes an impact and we felt the best way to keep track of that, at least for now, is going city by city on a local level. Right. Um, yeah, the national should be coming soon as well. It's awesome, guys. It's it's really worth seeing. It's educational, and like I said, I think it really really stirs the emotions as well. And not just uh, not just for stirring the emotions' sake. I think there are real lessons to take away, uh, namely the importance of how we carry ourselves and the presence we hold in each other's lives. It it was. Uh, it was really, really great, guys. Before before I let you go, though, I do. We, you mentioned driving around, screening this thing, filming this thing on a low budget. I have been on many, many road trips in my time, and uh, I've almost always been stranded at least once. So I got to know: do you ha- do you have any great road trip stories? Have you been stranded anywhere unexpectedly? Oh lord! Um... <laughs> in like a moral sense. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Like, I think, uh, uh, my buddies, I went to Ole Miss, my buddies, I think the craziest one was, um, I went to Ole Miss, my buddies, you know, I grew up with, um, went to UGA and my best friend growing up went to Colorado. And so Georgia and Colorado were playing each other one year. And so all the flights from Atlanta to Denver were like super booked up. And so they got bounced from their flight. And so in one night they drove from Atlanta, picked me up in, you know, who knows where Mississippi. And we drove all the way through the night to go to CU UGA. And it was just like, it just a bunch of debauchery. It's not really anything I want to say <laughs> on a podcast. Or Fair enough. We just did some like crazy stuff and just a super compressed timeline. And, um, 
I think that's yeah all I really want to share with you. <laughs> Fair enough. I think we've got one good travel story from the making of this film, at least in my mind. We drove from you know Texas to Florida a couple times, but we ended up flying to Syracuse, and that was right around the time of the Super Bowl. Oh my God! Uh, Patriots Falcons and Field happens to be a Falcons fan. So this <laughs> this whole time Field is determined to not watch this thing as the game's playing or on this on this plane as the game's going on. And sure enough, this big old dude in a Patriots hoodie comes and sits down right in front of Field and proceeds to stream the entire game. And I am so impressed by. Fields will because <laughs> the hood was on, the head was down for the entire flight until we get to O'Hare for a connecting flight. And we've got, I don't know, what, 10, 15 minutes to make the next plane back to Austin. Mm. And I shit you not, we are sprinting down the terminal and every single screen is tuned to the Super Bowl. And I look and the Falcons are up still. And, I, you know, I kind of smile to myself. That, you know, at least feel at the end of this pretty daunting shoot schedule, have a little bit of something to look forward to until we land. Yeah. So I had, I had my wife DVR it and like I turn off my uh, text messages. I turn off notifications, turn off everything. I was going to bound to determine to watch the whole Super Bowl by myself once I got home. We got home like what 11 p.m. or something. So I watched this damn game until 2 a.m. <laughs> and I'm just fast forwarding through our drives <laughs> and the Patriots come back from 28-3 or whatever. And I oh, just like brutal. I just fast forward all the way through, you know, overtime. And then everyone, you know, is anointing Tom Brady, the greatest player that's ever lived in any sport ever. And I'm just like, yeah, almost wanted to throw up. <laughs> but it was w- Worst feeling realizing the Falcons were about to lose that game or realizing someone broke Jim's record. <laughs> I, I, honestly, like I had to say, it was the Falcons game made me sick in my stomach. And I turned on my text uh, messages, and my brother texted me like thirty times, just like delete your DVR, don't watch the game, don't watch it. Uh, I was like, oh my god, but yeah, I probably the worst loss. Probably the worst loss in sports history. Sorry, sorry, we had to relive. No, it. no, I mean I've come to terms with it. <laughs> but it but, all right, all right, gentlemen. Uh, I'm out of questions, but I think we've entered what I would call the plug portion of this podcast. So I'm it. simply just going to hand the proverbial mic to you guys. Um, readily Apparent Media, what is it? Where can we find your stuff? And what's next for you guys? Yeah, Readily Apparent Media. We're a, a you know, documentary and nonfiction production house based out of Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, we specialize in, in documentaries, both short and long form. But we also do, uh, you know, you know, nonfiction and branding exercises for any number of companies out there. Uh, we've been working with the Onondaga Historical Association up in Syracuse. They do a lot of great work preserving Syracuse history and Central New York history. And uh, we got a grant and uh, a lot of help through the Austin Film Society. They do amazing work out here. Yeah. Also do a lot of corporate shoots. Anyone's interested? <laughs> we shot with IBM recently, uh, Salesforce, but. Uh, mainly, yeah, our heart and soul is documentary filmmaking uh, company that wants to pay the bills. <laughs> and, uh, and we will be showing the film on Rocky Mountain PBS this Monday. Um, 
at 10.30 Mountain Time. Uh, make sure to check it out, DVR it. It's right after the Heat uh, Nuggets game. So if you you know don't have your basketball fix from that, switch on over to Rocky Mountain PBS and uh, check us out. Yeah, record it. It'll be much better than the Patriots-Falcons Super Bowl. <laughs> we guarantee it. God. There you have it. Field Humphrey, Patrick Newman, the filmmakers behind. Let them know you're there. The story of Jim Tucker's record, record-setting triple-double and Nikola Jokic budding into history. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining me. This was awesome. Thank you so much, man. This was great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. The, the, the film was awesome. It's definitely worth checking out, so make sure everyone listening, you do that on Monday. Uh, that'll do it here for the Full Court Press Podcast. I will talk to you all next week, or two weeks from now, rather, when I should have Mike Olson on the horn. Until then, make sure you check out the Denver Stiffs podcast channel on iTunes, Stitcher, however you get your podcasts. Subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. We appreciate it. Talk to you guys in two weeks, and let's go Nuggets.